Welcome to Faith. Welcome to our unique uh, passages from Luke, the unparalleled uh, grace that we find only in the Gospel of Luke. We've been in this message series to try to uncover those particular passages that aren't found in any other Gospel accounts. Uh, last week, Pastor Stan revealed for us one of those passages about the calling of, of Peter uh, to be his disciple uh, in that fishing expedition. And we find that Jesus came to Peter, he confronted him with his pride, his, his sense of self-superiority, uh, self and he humbled him, but he humbled him in order to build him to be a grace-filled disciple. So Jesus, uh, he takes us as we are, but he doesn't leave us uh, where we are. But one of the things that Pastor Stan said is that when you taste it, uh, the grace of God, uh, you're ready uh, to be called. But what happens... Uh, and what, is, what does Jesus say to those who have experienced his grace or who presume on his grace or who would expect or demand or feel entitled to the grace of God? What does Jesus say to those who think that God is about giving them the good life? Well, here's some words from Luke chapter 14 to this crowd. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him and say, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, be salty, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Think was a song written in 19... 68 it was a hit song by the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. And while it was a song about the freedom and respect for women, uh, one interpreter said, Think is a song about the warning where the singer of the lyric is giving to a romantic interest uh, that he should not be flirting with her without considering the full and long-term consequences of doing so. Flirting with me isn't innocent. <laughs> and so the words, people walk around every day playing games and taking scores, trying to make other people lose their mind. Well, be careful you don't lose yours. So think, think, think about what you're trying to do to me. And you probably can sing the rest of those lyrics. Uh, one, one, of this, uh, one of the lyrics that doesn't fit in this is, you know, I need you and you need me. Uh, but Jesus doesn't need us. But we need Jesus. 
But here in Luke 14, Jesus is telling such flirting followers to stop and to think about what does it mean to be his disciple. Uh, Jesus is not interested in being popular. Jesus is not interested in superficial followers. He's not about entertaining people or pleasing crowds or growing crowds. Yesterday, Jim Whiting, uh, who's a, our building superintendent, he's been worshiping here for over 30 years. This is the first time he's ever sent me an email giving me an article to read. He says, I just felt an urge for some reason. I really don't know why, but I just thought this would be helpful. And he sent this article, and it was an article about church growth when commuters become consumers. Commuters mean those who are, you know, uh, worshiping, uh, becoming consumers. Anyhow, in a survey of a thousand church attenders, respondents were asked, why does the church exist? According to 89% of church's purpose, uh, respondents said to take care of my family and my spiritual needs. That's the 89% of churchgoers in this survey said that's the purpose for church. Only 11% said the purpose of the church is to win the world for Jesus. And so uh, the article by uh, Greg Laurie said, if we train consumers instead of communers, we'll end up with customers instead of disciples. It might fill an auditorium, but it will never turn the world upside down for Christ. I think he's, he's right in so many ways. Uh, he talks about that pastors are tempted often to exchange entertainment for exhortation or gimmicks for the gospel in order to grow the church. And uh, there's, a, there's a pressure uh, to prompt us to be silent on the harder things. Uh, we stay away from talking about sin or judgment. Uh, and salvation matters. But here in Luke, Jesus gets real with people. People that he is not interested in growing the church by any means necessary. He's about building grace-filled disciples uh, who will renounce every competing interest and follow him at all costs. Here, Jesus subjects those who are thinking about following him to one of the most severe sifting processes. Our passage opens with these words, now great crowds accompanied him. And so here Jesus is at the pinnacle of his popularity. He's been healing people. He's been raising the dead. He's been casting out demons. He's been feeding the thousands. Uh, he's been, you know, showing Peter how to catch the fish. Uh, he's even made some stuffy religious leaders uh, really mad, which is an interesting time to, to watch him. He has gained the reputation of being a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus has a reputation of being a real party man. <laughs> Everybody loves Jesus. Jesus is the man, you know, and he's on the movement. He set his face, it says like Flint, towards Jerusalem. Everybody is thinking uh, that's surrounding him, these crowds are thinking that Jesus is ascending his throne into Jerusalem. He is this long-awaited Messiah who will conquer the oppressive Roman government and set up his throne, restore the physical nation of Israel, and it's going to be a wonderful day. 
That's what this crowd is thinking. But Jesus' rise to the throne would not come by means of brute physical force, but through a brutal suffering, humiliation, and shame through death, death on a Roman cross. And he's been trying to tell his disciples this. He's been communicating to his disciples about that he is going to be arrested, he's going to be killed, and on the third day he'll rise. They don't really understand too much of exactly what that all means, but he's been telling them. And what Jesus tells his disciples privately, he is now telling the crowds publicly. You know, Jesus doesn't have two faces. What he says privately, what you see is what you get. Personal, private, and public, this is Jesus. And his message is consistent, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so Jesus makes clear what it is to be a disciple, what the cost of discipleship is. And he emphasizes really three primary things to be a disciple. Being a disciple means that Jesus has to be your first love. Uh, Being a disciple means that Jesus uh, demands unconditional surrender. And being a disciple means cross-bearing. Unconditional surrender. So therefore, verse 33, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. And here Jesus concludes a section in this passage. He talks about hating, you know, family members. He talks about bearing cross. He talks about uh, these two uh, parables about a, a person who builds a tower, tower and then a warring king. He gives these expressions. But at the end of it, he talks about what it means and what he's after. What he's after is that anyone who wants to follow me must renounce. He must say farewell. He must forsake all other competing interests. And so Jesus points out to all prospective disciples these tremendous demands. He doesn't want anyone to recklessly resolve to follow him without knowing really what it means. And so he gives these two parables in this particular part that to, to expose this. He talks about a person who builds a tower. Anyone who's a smart builder will you know, estimate uh, about what it costs before he embarks on that particular project. Because if he starts and he doesn't finish because he doesn't have the money, well, everybody will think he's a fool. I, when, I used to, when I was in elementary school on a bus, there was a house on the intersection of Rolling Road in Windsor Mill in Baltimore County. And uh, I remember seeing it go up, and it was the, the frame went up, they put the sheathing on, the sides and the roof, and that's what it remained. For years, we'd drive past this, this house, and it was never completed. In fact, today, if you drive past that house, well, you, you'll see uh, a facade around it, but no one has ever lived in it. And I can always, you know, remember hearing that the builder didn't have the money to finish it. They started the project, but it didn't get finished. And, of course, people just think, well, what a foolish waste of money. But Jesus says, don't be such a fool. Know what you're getting into. Know what it costs. Know what it means to be my disciple. And then he gives this other illustration about this warring king. Uh, You know, that think about it. Do your military strategy. Uh, Understand what the forces are that are coming against you. 
what's your response going to be? One of the interesting things about these, uh, these particular parables is, is that there's more to it than just thinking about it. There's a conclusion that Jesus comes to, and the conclusion is, it's going to cost you everything. You have to renounce everything. And you're the king with 10,000, and you have another king with 20,000. He basically is saying, you need to understand the force coming against you, because if you're a smart king, you'll set terms of peace. Jesus says you must renounce everything. Jesus is the king, not just with 20,000, but with 20 gazillion. <laughs> okay, he's coming. Uh, Bob, Bob Dylan had this song in the 80s. He said, a slow train coming. You know, Jesus is the slow train coming in all of history. You know, we know his kingdom has come, and it's coming, and you better respond to this king. And so he makes it clear that this king that's coming uh, is going to cost you everything. It will demand everything. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer was a, a German pastor who sought to uh, go up against uh, Hitler in World War II, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and he talks about costly grace. He said, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for which, is, for which sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. And you know, when you think about when Jesus called the disciples, like Peter, you know, it says that he left his nets and followed him, or uh, John, John and Andrew, they left their father and they went and followed him, or Matthew, the text collector, there's a refrain. They, he left everything and he followed Jesus. So we find that that is the nature of true discipleship. It is a renouncing of all things and following Christ. It's, this is really, by the way, a language of worship, is it not? Which king will you submit to? Who will you spend yourself for? You know, where do you invest your finances? Who has control of your purse strings? Where is your heart? Who will you surrender your life to? It's really about worship. It's about a king. It's about your treasure. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, I'm not into cheap grace. I'm not into cheap discipleship. I'm into real worship. And so uh, one of the interesting things is that you have to understand the context of the scriptures when he talks about the kind of king that Jesus is calling us to, to, to submit to, to surrender to. Uh, one of the wonderful illustrations of this is in 2 Kings chapter 6, and it's dealing with the time of Israel when they were being warred against by the king of Aram. And uh, it was during the time of Elisha, uh, the, the prophet, and the king of Aram would come with his military force to try to uh, subdue Israel. But Elisha had a prophetic uh, you know, understanding of where the army was, and he would inform the Israel about where king Aram's forces were, and they would move and and uh, obviously, the king of Aram was really upset 
that all you know his intelligence was getting out, and he thought it was one of his men uh, that was betraying him, and so he was calling them together and said, "Who's who's you know who's my who's the conspirator who's betraying us?" And he said, "No, no, no, no. You have to understand, uh, Elisha understands what you're saying in your bedroom." <laughs> And so he says, well, we got to take this guy out. So he sends a force. Where is he? He's at Dotham. He sends a force of his, his military, his chariots, to Dotham, to surrounding the city. The servant is looking at the, the, the surrounding uh, armies of Aram. And Elisha uh, asks God to open the eyes of his servant up. And when he opens his eyes, he sees the hills are full of, 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 of the military, full of chariots of fire, and, uh, and he says, greater, you know, greater are the forces of God than what Aram has. And so uh, then as this force comes in, uh, Elisha asks that God would blind the eyes of the soldiers. They're all blinded. <clears throat> and uh, Elisha goes out and he says, this is not the road and this is not the city. And he leads this whole military of Aram into the city of Samaria, the national capital and they're surrounded by the forces of Israel's army. And then he asked God to open their eyes. And here's the military. They open their eyes and they're surrounded by their enemies. And the king of Israel says, well, Father, what should I do to Elisha? He says, should I kill them? Should I kill them? He says, no, would you kill you know, men that you've captured in war? Which was not the practice of Israel. And he says, no, you set water and drink before them. But it says that. What the king of Israel did is that they, he gave a great feast to this army. They had a big party. They just celebrated. And then they sent them home, and it says the king of Aram stopped warring against Israel. Isn't that a beautiful story? How do you treat your enemies? How you make your enemies your friends? There's a bigger picture here, you see, because the king, the great king, is a king who subdues his enemies by love. He invites us to a great wedding banquet. You know, in Luke and the gospel accounts, you just find over and over again that God is presenting himself as the host of a great banquet, and he's inviting all to come to this great banquet. And as we heard from the, the, the scriptures today, so stop and think about who you're worshiping, who you're surrendering to, who you're uh, spending yourself and your treasure on. But next, it's Jesus telling us to stop and think about uh, what it means to be a cross-bearer. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come to me cannot be my disciple. Now, this you, know, you have to imagine that this kind of language is shocking, is it not? Cross-bearer. Now, for them, when they think of the cross and the Roman cross— uh, was a horrendous, hideous, disgusting way to die. Uh, and, of course, Jesus is bringing this image up. And Jesus brought this image up to his, other, his, his own personal disciples, and they were having a hard time understanding exactly what this means. And, by the way, if you're kind of new to, uh, to the Christian faith or you're trying to explore Christianity— and you're hearing a passage like this that seems really crazy and hard, Jesus didn't really start talking about the cross until like two and a half years into his ministry with his disciples. Okay? So you got to give it some time. <laughs> you have to give it some time. You know, Jesus first, when he meets his disciples, he says, come and see, and they spend a day with him. 
You know, uh, Peter has this great catch of fish. And, and so Jesus is spending time. So be careful about taking this passage out of context. Jesus has got some hard teachings, but these hard teachings can become very precious to us as we understand the bigger context. But, but here Jesus is talking about anyone who comes after me must deny himself, bear, carry his cross, and follow me. Uh, what does that mean? Well, those people really didn't fully understand that. The disciples didn't fully understand that. But when Jesus talked to his disciples about that, before he tells them about bearing their cross, he says in, in Luke chapter 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then, right after that, he immediately says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What is Jesus talking about? This cross. Well, Jesus connecting the cross of the disciples with his cross. He's talking about the union with Christ on the cross. And as we find in the rest of the scriptures, our bearing the cross is not trying to suffer for Jesus to save ourselves. It's uniting our hearts to the cross of Christ. You know, Paul was very clear that I have died with Christ. And, I, he, you know, he calls us to set our hearts on things above because I have died with Christ. Uh, he says in Galatians chapter 2, my, you know, he talks about that his life was hidden in Christ. Uh, in the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. I have therefore crucified myself. There's a union with Christ. We don't suffer in order to get ourselves saved, okay? That, we can never suffer enough to save ourselves. It's about where, who do we follow? Bear your, carry your cross and follow me. So, yes, there's a daily cross, we, that we have in this world, but it's, it's Jesus' cross that we're united with that gives us uh, the power to overcome all things. So it's an identification with Christ, our union with Christ. And it really comes to who will you trust to save yourself? Who will you trust? Who will you look to? Who will you come after to save yourself? The cross that we carry is connected to Christ's cross. He died the death that we should have died. He rose to, to life so that we could have everlasting life. And that is how we uh, are able to overcome all of the, the losses in this life, uh, push through all the sufferings of this life. I remember I was in uh, a friend of mine, he was my youth leader in young life, and he struggled with academics. Uh, I think there was a learning disability, but he, you know, it was, it was like, that's what you had to do. You had to go to college. You had to push through. And so he kept pushing through, and he, he tried community college five times. And I remember I was with him that fifth time. And he just kept persevering because he wanted to, you know, do what all of his friends were doing, but he just, just wasn't working. And as I sat there with him, he says, it's okay. Jesus still loves me. <laughs> You know, he just maintained the core of his identity. It was not in his success in college or his grades. 
it was on the basis that Jesus loved him. And he's a successful man. He's doing great things. But college just it wasn't for him. And that's okay. You know, your identity is not based on your performance. It's not based on your success. It's not based on whether you're married or whether you're single. It's not based on all these things that the world says this is the meaning of life. This is the success of your life. That you can lose all these things because if you have Christ, if you're following Christ, you have all things. And it's really that kind of security that gives people the ability to face hard things and to be able to give themselves sacrificially to causes of righteousness and justice in in the world. Yesterday was the 50 uh, anniversary of uh, Selma, uh, the the march uh, from Selma to uh, Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, that really uh, got, got launched because of a deacon by the name of Jimmy Lee Jackson. He was 26 years old. And uh, he was trying to protect his mother from being beaten by a trooper. And uh, as he tried to protect his mother, he was shot by the trooper, and he died. And then on the next day, on March the 7th, uh, they decided they were going to do this march from, from Selma to the capital of Montgomery. And, uh, <clears throat> and of course, we, we knew that that was, uh, became a very public thing of showing the racial injustices in our society. But... King said, there are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. So our suffering, our cross-bearing, is really not about us saving ourselves. It's about we have a Savior who saved us, and we can give our lives away to his kingdom and his causes. And of course, we've seen in the last month the, the 21 Coptic Christian men who were, who were killed and beheaded. But there was a, a, a Trappist monk in Algeria back in 1969 uh, where seven of those men uh, gave their lives uh, for, for their faith. And uh, this one uh, Christian, the church, uh, was a, uh, the, the kind of the head Trappist monk. And he wrote a letter before he, he was executed. And, uh, but in this letter, he said, he's writing to the executioner, the person actually cut his head off. He said, and to you, my friend of the last moment, who will not know what you are doing, yes, for you too, I wish this thank you, this uh, do, which means I commend you to God, whose image is in you also, that we may meet in heaven like happy thieves, if it pleases God, our, commune, our common father. He He's, he's praying, he's hoping that the person that's, that's taking his head off, that he will see in heaven in glory, and they can celebrate together as happy thieves, as happy, unworthy sinners together before a glorious Savior. You see, that was what drove him to stay faithful into this little community in Algeria. Take up your cross. It means to bear and to unite yourself to the cross of Christ. And, uh, and to celebrate into his death for you. But thirdly, being a disciple means that Jesus must be our first love. If anyone come, uh, comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That, that is like 
unbelievable words. In a patriarchal society where the family was such a central value for, for, for everything, I mean, to be able to say to hate, I mean, what is Jesus? He's, it is a shocking thing to hear. Of course, uh, it also is a, Jesus is also focusing on our Western individualistic society because he not only says to hate, you know, your father, your mother, but he also says yes and even your own life. So in our individualistic kind of uh, Western society, he, Jesus is attacking those things. I think uh, Tim Keller did say this extremely well. He says, you must be willing to kiss all of those priorities and those hyper-values goodbye. He says, Jesus looked at, the, at uh, the normal agenda of a person's family-centric value system and says, don't you dare come to me with your agenda and outline of what you want your life to be and try to fit me in. I will not be used. Don't come to me because you want to become a better husband or wife or happy family or more fulfilled life. Don't come to me because I'm relevant or because I'm exciting or that, you know, coming to me would mean that you'll be a better citizen. He said, I will not be used. You need to love me for me and myself. And, you know, Jesus is talking about affection here. And when he uses the word hate, he's not using it to be actively hostile. Jesus would not say actively be hostile towards your father, your mother, your wife, because we know that the rest of the scriptures tell us that we're to love and honor our parents. That's what this command says. Uh, the rest of the scriptures tell us that we're, you know, to, for husbands to sacrifice for their wives and to love their children. So we know that Jesus isn't meaning to be actively hostile. So Jesus is talking about a comparative nature of hate and love. And he's He's, there's a passage in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 26 about uh, Jacob and his relationship to his wives, Leah and Rachel. And it said that he hated Rachel, but he loved Leah. Well, actually, the verse in verse 26 says, but he, he loved Rachel more. He had more affection for, for, for Rachel. And in comparison, uh, it, it was like he hated her, but it is a comparison thing. So Jesus is basically saying, I will have no competing loves. If you're going to follow me, I have to have your heart. I have to have your affections. Um, <clears throat> I was in uh, Florida. This, my parents are living in Florida, and uh, my mom had, uh, had surgery a couple weeks ago, had pneumonia. It was kind of like a scare, scary thing, and so I spent uh, some very hard days in Florida this past week. You know, 80 degrees temperature. You know, a lot of people feel really guilty about being in Florida when they look at the weather reports. They say, all these poor people up in Boston or Baltimore or wherever. <clears throat> but uh, so I had a wonderful time with my parents. Uh, my parents uh, got married at uh, 18 years old. And uh, they were high school sweethearts. Um, and they had five kids. I'm the fourth born. And I, you know, they asked me what I was preaching on, so I read them this passage. You know, if anyone comes after me must hate uh, his father and mother, <laughs> you know, his wife. And, of course, you know, they're kind of being very sober as I'm talking to them. And, you know, as we're talking, what does this passage mean? Uh, here's the deal. It means more. Oh, by the way, so that's 
That's them now. That's 67 years they've been married by God's grace. And uh, I, can, I can tell you that my, my life has been very blessed and rich in my, my siblings for having uh, parents that have been committed in love for those, all those particular years. But what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about these family relationships of father and mother. He talks about wife. He talks about children. Um, he's talking about the heartstrings. He's talking about our affections. He's talking about love. You know, and Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, I've got to be not just your priority in life, but your highest affection. You have to love me. I want your love. I don't want anything less. And so Jesus is really coming after his disciples to encourage them to give their full affections to him. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, give me your all. Give me, give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. Give me yourself, and in exchange I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. Uh, and actually, Jonathan Edwards had a great statement on this. He says, he who has no religious affection is in a state of spiritual death and is wholly destitute of the powerful, quickening, saving influences of the Spirit of God upon his heart. It is so important that we nurture our affections for our God. It's so important that you and I protect our affections for Jesus. He doesn't just want, uh, you know, abstract worship, like, you know, to come to an assembly. He wants your heart every day. He wants you to be fascinated and astounded by him. And a lot of times we have these dry spells, and it's hard for us to comprehend that, that our God wants that kind of relationship with us, but he does, and he expresses it in so many ways. You know, as a bride rejoices over his, his as a groom rejoices over his bride, so I have rejoiced over you. Zephaniah talks about God singing over us with love. Uh, you know, the greatest uh, movement of all of history is uh, to a wedding feast, you know, with the bride coming down out of heaven uh, beautifully dressed, and God is, you know, is celebrating in this love. I mean, he is deeply in love with you. His affections are for you. You are the apple of his eye, and you see, he wants you to express your love to him. He wants you to nurture that. You know, there's things that will try to kill it, and how do you keep those affections alive? Well, one thing is just, you know, thanksgiving. You know, enters courts with thanksgiving, the psalm says, and his courts with praise. You know, just start thinking about what God has blessed you with. Just start thanking him for the simple things. God, you woke me up this morning. I had a meal today. My, you know, I have friends. I, you know, I had transportation. I'm here at church. I'm in the house of God today. We've had some good worship. You know, I mean, you need to just start thinking of what you can thank God for. And as you start to think about all those blessings, all those encouragements, your heart will be warm. Uh, actually, it was Joyce told me, says, well, you should tell them next sermon uh, to have them think about what they're thankful for of the things you've done in the past. You know, all the things that, you know, just start thinking about how God's blessed you in your history. Uh, 
and, and your heart will start to warm up. But the other thing is God's word. God's word is living and active, and he will speak to you. This passage, uh, when I first read it, I said, man, I, don't, I was trying to look for another passage to preach on. <laughs> you know, And I was sitting there with uh, Blake and with uh, Stan, and, uh, you know, <clears throat> anyhow, this became my passage. So I said, okay, I'll do this. But you know, every time I've read this passage, it's just like, oh, man, this is so deep. It's so hard. Um, you know, how do you wrap your head around this? And it seems like you have to almost, like, you know, just go to the cross right now and die. And I just said, Jesus, just kill me now and just get it over with. Here I am. You know, this daily dying. You know, I mean, what does all this mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It's about worship. It's about being so amazed with the glory of your God that all losses just pale in comparison. You can just let the stuff go. You don't have to control those things because you're beloved, and you need to live in that. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my disciples, you've got to nurture that affection for me. You have to make me your greatest love because guess what? I've come after you. I have pursued you to the deepest depths to raise you to the highest heights. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you give us uh, even a hard passage like this, Lord, as we look at it in the rest of scriptures, it, a hard passage becomes a precious passage. Lord, would you teach us more just how to grow in grace, how to understand our call to worship you, because we recognize, Lord, that if we don't worship you, uh, we're worshiping things that will put us in bondage, that will destroy uh, the goodness that you've done in our lives. So God, help us to to trust you and to follow you and to give our lives to you more fully every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.